I mean, I think it's always dangerous to learn that there's a different path than the one you're taking because then you may feel inclined to go down that path and it's exciting, but it's very unknown. My name is Carmen Maria Machado. Uh, I am a writer. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) My book coming out is called Her Body and Other Parties. It's coming out in October, October 3rd, uh, if you're in the US. Um, and also January, I think, in the if you're in the UK. Uh, and what was the other thing? <laughs> Once upon a time, readers, several years ago, long before I met Carmen Maria Machado at the Clarion Writers Workshop in 2012, I was at a bar in Oxford, Mississippi, and I was telling a friend of mine about how I had been listening the previous day to the NPR show, all things are interesting. Now, of course, that show does not exist. But I bring it up now because that is how it feels to have a conversation with Carmen Maria Machado. When you're talking with her, you get caught up in the force of her passion. And for a moment, and maybe if you're lucky, forever, all things are interesting. Everything in the world is just that little bit sharper and brighter. Everything has an extra spark of life to it. The good, the bad, the horror, and the wonder. You know, you think about like Law and Order SVU, like rip from the headlines, mm-hmm. right? So like sometimes you watch episodes of Law and Order SVU and it's like this weird fever dream of like <laughs> sort of true life things, kind of. And you're like, this is familiar. Oh, cause you, I, I read a story about this. Like I read, like, I read this in like the times or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and now there's like this weird fictionalized version of it happening, but like mashed up with like some other fictionalized story that I sort of remember. And like the result is like very uncanny and strange, but. Recently, Carmen talked with us about, among other things, sex, gender, television, the revelation of Kate Winslet's body, and the power of imagining that there are, and have always been, other ways of being. Characters just being queer, incidentally, is something that's very important to me. Um... In the same way that, like, some of the sex is just sort of incidental. Like, it's happening. Like, I'm alive. I'm a person. I'm having the character. You know, this is the character. Like, they're alive. They're a person. They're having sex in various ways for various reasons with various results. And, like, that's just, like, part of a human experience. And also, they happen to be, like, queerish. So, they're, like, whether this thing with, like, men or women, like, they're still, they're just sort of, like, having their experiences. And, yeah, I, just, I think I just, that's just what I... You know, I always tell like people like write the stories you want to see, and I feel like the same way about it. it's like I want I'm writing the sex scenes that I wish I was seeing all over the place, and there's something very satisfying about that. Carmen's debut short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties, has been long listed for the National Book Award, was chosen as a finalist for the Kirkus Prize, and it has been described by Ellie Robbins in the Los Angeles Times as quote an example of almost preposterous talent that also encapsulates something vital, but previously diffuse about the moment. People like what is sort of categorizable and explainable. And I think this is true of like bodies, it's true of gender, it's true of sexuality, it's true. And then I think with stories too, people get very invested in like, this is not the thing I thought it was gonna be. And I don't like how I feel like this isn't the category that I was promised. And I think people get very stressed out by that. And I, I think, but I think the other people are, there's a sort of a, a openness to liminality that I think is, are usually the people that I, I become friends with. <laughs> and also the people who, um, the, the sort of way of thinking that interests me most, which is that like, 
it's not just enough where like I'm switching I'm combining these two genres you're like I'm just gonna move freely between all these things as I see fit because I can do that because I'm a person and I have words and I can make them do whatever I want I'm Chris Camerud and this is a storyological pocket interview with Carmen Maria Machado Uh, I was going to say my dad's favorite weather was to sit outside and smell the thunderstorm coming. That was his favorite thing in the world. We did that just last night. In fact, I was out of town and I got back to Philly and I came in just like as I was the cab was bringing me home. It was like the sky was full of clouds and I was like, oh, it is going to it is going to pour. I can just tell. And I got home in Val and I just like sat on the porch and drank beer and like watched the thunderstorm come in until it got too scary. And then we went inside because it got like the lightning got really close. We were like, ah. um, but it was like so dark that like the streetlights went on and I was like, yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a little drama in your day, you know, a little like dramatic arc. Mm hmm. <laughs> What was the name of the the little suburban town? Um, well, I grew up in Allentown, um, but we did move. So when I, f- when I first lived in Allentown, we lived sort of like very close to the edge of the city. Um, and so it was like near like Muhlenberg College and like near a lot of parks. And it was a very like old sort of tree-lined street. Um, and then when I was about in fifth grade, where my parents built a house way further out in the suburbs, like much closer to like the more rural part. And that was also beautiful in its own way, but it just had a little less, you know, it was that sort of new development. So it was a little more, a little more controlled, I guess. Billy Joel had this song, I think, called Allentown. I wonder if it played any part of your childhood. <laughs> yeah, no. It was funny is that song is actually about Bethlehem, which is a neighboring town. But apparently Allentown, this is what I've heard anyway, that Allentown like fit better in the song. So he called it Allentown, but it was more about Beth because Bethlehem steel closed in like the 70s or the 80s. Mm. And it's like sort of threw the whole area into like a big economic depression. Um including Allentown also, but Bethlehem was actually sort of the main center of that. So, but I definitely know it. I mean, it was a good, it was handy. Like when, when I went to college and people would say like, who are you and where you're from? I said, I'm Carmen, like the opera and I'm from Allentown, like the song. Um, (laughs) And it was like a handy, a handy shorthand. And then everybody remembered me Mm -hmm. (laughs) or at least they, they seem to remember my name in any case. There was an interview I read, something you said about how, when you were growing up, you thought like this place that I grew up is the one thing I'm never going to put in my stories. I think something like that, like you thought that your, you know, your art would take you away from that. I wonder if you could talk about like what, you know, what was going on in teenage Carmen that she thought, ah, this place, no. You know, when I look back on it, like it wasn't that bad. You know, I feel like there were way worse places I could have grown up. Um, And I think Pennsylvania is very beautiful. And obviously I live here now, so... But I don't know, you know, I, I think, I, you know, I had friends and I was a good student. Like I, I, you know, I read a lot. I was in some clubs. I mean, I feel like I had like a, in some ways, like a very normal sort of upbringing. But I also, I was like very religious and had this sort of like really intense, um, I don't know what to call it, this like intense sort of spiritual crisis of a type. You know, I sort of experienced sexual violence as so many young women do. Um, there was sort of a lot of stuff. I, I wasn't getting along with my parents, especially my mother. And so I feel like there was just a lot of, you know, I felt so unmoored and like there was nothing I wanted more than to go to college. I mean, and I also like, I was one of those kids who always wanted to go to boarding school because I imagined boarding school like college where you get to like 
go away and like live your life. And I think I felt very like I just wanted to be I was ready to just be like in charge of my own not destiny, but just in charge of my own like day to day sort of existence. So I feel like when I was younger, I just I felt like kind of out of control and I wanted to feel I felt like other people were in control of my life and I wanted to be in control of my life. Um, And that didn't really happen until I went to college, which I think is like a pretty normal feeling for teenagers to feel like, you know, you technically don't really have a say over like where you go or what you do. Um, And I, I just didn't like it. And I felt very sort of trapped. And then when I went to college, I was sort of able to, you know, like it sounds weird, but like I could decide like just how to structure my day, like what to put on my own walls, like how to just sort of live. And it felt really good and really freeing. And I think was something that I was missing as a young person. And so I think I translated that to Allentown, but I don't think it's actually Allentown specifically. I think I just was unhappy as a kid. Titanic. Yes. I feel like you've talked to me about the role Titanic played in your adolescence. (laughs) Uh, if you're comfortable to express that that now, I feel like we're in that moment of Carmen's life where, uh-huh. you know, you're discovering things, discovering power, control. Yeah, well, it's it's funny. I was just talking to Titanic about somebody like three days ago and they were like, I don't understand why you like Titanic so much. And I was like, it's very important uh, to me. I saw it. Um, I actually saw it in theaters, which is crazy because I wasn't allowed to see PG-13 movies. But for some reason, my mother took me to see Titanic even though I was 11 when it came out um and I I was riveted by it I think it's the source I feel like it's the root so to speak of like a lot of things about me I think it's the root of my love of a certain amount of um sentimentalism I think it's the root of my love of disaster movies and I think it's a root of um I don't want to say the root of my sexual orientation, but I, I remember very clearly my mother like covering my eyes during the sex scene, but not covering my eyes during the the drawing scene because I think she thought, oh, like whatever, it's breasts. Like Carmen's a girl, she has breasts no, or she will, you know, not a big deal. But of course, the assumption being that I was not queer, which I was. So I was like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Kate Winslet's body was a revelation. Uh and it was pretty magical. And I was like, I don't know what's happening to me right now, but I'm having lots of feelings. So, so yeah. So weirdly Titanic, it's funny. I like, I feel like I defend it a lot. I also am just like fascinated. The, I, I watch it like f- not infrequently. Um, and like it is, you know, parts of it are kind of silly, but you know, the sort of obsessive level of historical detail in that movie is quite extraordinary. Um, and I, I'm very much in awe of James Cameron for that because I feel like that movie is like a manifestation of his obsession, which is also a thing as an, as an artist that I'm really interested in is like how people's obsessions like turn into art. Were you already writing stories when you saw Titanic? Yeah, I basically wrote stories from when I could pick up a, a <laughs> pen. Like I was always really interested in narrative and I, I, I was writing like weird little stories and poems and things when I was like real little. Did Kate Winslet's breasts change what you were writing? <laughs> uh, I don't think explicitly, though I did, you know, our first computer was like a Windows 3.1, like mm-hmm. desktop, which I loved. And I would write, uh, I would. I haven't thought about this in a long time. I would write like dirty story, but they weren't dirt. They weren't, 
they were like dirty for like what an 11 or 12 year old could like <laughs> conceive of which was like not very dirty at all um so I would I like knew words like nipple and I would like write a little sentence and be like really titillated by it but I think that I didn't know how to delete documents so I would save it under a different name <laughs> and then I would like put new text over it and like save and save and save and then I would like double check to make sure that like the thing in the document was like some weird sentence and it wasn't it wasn't um this weird dirty thing I or dirty in quotation marks this like dirty <laughs> thing I'd written um I haven't thought about that in so long but yeah <laughs> I love that computer um <laughs> How would you describe this collection, Her Body and Other Parties? You know, I'm sure that you've been doing lots of interviews and maybe you've you've figured out the way you want to describe it. Maybe it's changing every time you describe it. But I just want to hear your words, how you would describe this collection. How I would describe it. I mean, I would describe <laughs> it as a collection that is uninterested in genre boundaries and very interested in the body as it relates to the mind. Mm. Um, yeah. I don't think I've ever like articulated that precisely before. I mean, I want it, you know, it's funny, like, I feel like I've gone through this a long learning process of learning, like, what, like, what is, how does a story collection function? And, you know, there are different philosophies about it. When I was in grad school, a teacher said to me, like, you know, I like collections to be sort of chewing on similar themes. Like, they're speaking to a sort of a, a body of interest. Um mm-hmm. And so, you know, in that way they feel consistent, even if the stories aren't linked to each other actually physically, you know, they're not like in the same universe or whatever. Um, And at first I was like, oh, that's not, you don't no, you don't need that. But of course, like as I continued to read collections, I was like the collections that really interest me are collections that do that that exact thing. And when I read collections that are just sort of like the last 20 stories this person wrote, I always feel kind of annoyed. Like I'm like, (laughs) I wish this was more thoughtfully curated. and I mean, again, like, it's just a different philosophy. It's not like one is right or one is wrong. But I'm I'm just really interested in collections that, like, sort of explore what an author's, like, interests are um, and what they're, like, what they're chewing on at that moment as a person. And I think that when you read Her Body and Other Parties, you can sort of see very clearly, like, what I am. <laughs> it's like your little window into my weird mind where it's like, oh, like, clearly Carmen is thinking about, like, X, Y, Z. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. So, like, I, that's the kind of collection that I like to read. So that was the collection that I wrote. And, like, when I sold the book, my editor even took – there were a few stories in that that he took out. And I totally – like, he was like, I think – because they don't quite speak to this theme. And I was like, oh, you're totally right. So, like, the collection is actually pretty lean. Like, it's only eight stories. Um, but I like that because I feel like it was mm. just, they're all, it's just like a really tight collection around these, like, ideas. And I really, I really liked, I liked that that's my book, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, lean, like, lean and focus, but it's so immersive. There's a feeling of immersion that I adore in the way that I adore. In music albums, albums that feel like they speak to a similar sound or theme and aren't just a collection of singles where each four minutes I'm jolted into a different mode of being. Like no matter how many different forms your stories are, they feel obsessed. And you mentioned obsession before. Like, mm-hmm. Is obsession something that you've embraced your entire life? Like this is a way to find out who I am. This is a way, a thing to follow that will take me like deeper and wider into the world. Yeah, I mean, I do think that yeah, obsession does interest me very much. I think it interests me because, you know, I, I feel like I grew up with a, a, a tremendous amount of anxiety about knowledge and 
and like how one like having enough knowledge or not having enough knowledge and I I don't precisely I'm sure there's some very I'm sure some therapist would like love to tell me explain to me why (laughs) that's like a thing that I'm obsessed with and I'm sure it's like goes back to like I don't know some childhood trauma or whatever but I I do think that I feel like that was always an anxiety of mine was like I'm not smart enough like I don't know enough things I haven't read enough books I'm not a wide-ranging enough conversationalist etc etc the thing about obsession is that like it's almost like it's natural like it's not forced like it's like something your brain is like so into something that like you can't help but like gather a great deal of knowledge um and so so my obsessions are very like strange not strange like I mean I think they're like fairly normal but like they're very focused and I feel like that's kind of how like my my sort of reading history is as well is like you know I I haven't read like chunks of the so-called canon but I have read like all of the books by like a certain author you know or like books in a certain field um and that's just sort of my or like I know a lot about a certain topic and I feel like that's like letting myself follow that um to wherever it leads me when you mentioned the obsession with knowledge I was thinking about uh people I've met including me who have this feeling a little bit that you well like Karen Russell's story uh, the home for girls raised by wolves a sense like everyone seemed to know what you were supposed to do but you felt like you were missing this piece of knowledge yeah I mean I think there also is an element like a gendered element to it where Mm. you know I remember like growing up and like visiting certain relatives and um you know everyone would eat and dance and have a good time and then like when it came time to do the dishes like the women would all go to the dishes and the men would like retreat outside to smoke cigars um and as a kid I was like very attuned to that and how unfair and disturbing it was that it always not even just like some people labored and some people you know uh engaged in recreation but that like that it was like the women in labored and the men you know engaged in recreation and I feel like I was always sort of chasing this idea that like I can be as good as a man which is like its own like really fucked up problematic weird thing to say and to think and I feel like this is a thing that I struggle with as a mm-hmm. as a thinker and as a writer and I feel like I I've tried to sort of articulate it and write about it and I've never quite like hit I've never quite like figured out what I'm talking about when I say that but I <laughs> I feel like there's like some sort of like anxiety in there and it comes from this sort of like gendered idea um which is not to say that I was like I, was, I don't think like my parents were you know very are lovely and are very we're very um we're never like you can't do this thing because you're a girl like it wasn't quite like that but I feel like it's more like I was really sensitive and attuned to all the really really sort of nefarious subtle sort of gendered messages that we're that just exist in the world of which there are so many right and I think I'm fighting against that really hard and it's just been like a real a real challenge I I remember reading an interview. You mentioned Philip Roth, uh, <laughs> and your. Yeah. I'm I'm currently <laughs> rereading some Roth, so I was like, oh, that's mm-hmm. fascinating. I wonder. So what I got from what you said, it's kind of briefly in some interviews, is you've read some of his books and you love Sabbath, mm-hmm. or that was your favorite. I'm not sure love is the right word about Sabbath theater. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> you mentioned that you wanted something different than Roth. You you wondered where the women writers were who were writing as explicitly about sex. And I don't know how long ago that interview was, but do you feel like you're creating this space? You're occupying this space that you wish 
was being occupied. Yeah, I don't know if I, I don't, I don't, I definitely do not want to ever say that I created that space because I definitely didn't. Right. Like, there are women who are writing sort of, you know, writing about sex and writing sex. Um, but it's just not as common. And I feel like I just don't, like just the other day I like opened up, uh, I think it was Book Forum or, or some some review magazine. And there was like this entire article just about how um, how Jonathan Franzen writes sex. And I was like, I feel like I just never see that with wit. Like I just, I just, I'm, I feel like we, yeah, we just don't value it. We don't talk about like female writers writing sex. It's like nearly as much as we do about men. Um, so I mean, and there are absolutely like male writers, right? Like I, I think I've probably mentioned that same interview. I'm obsessed with Nicholson Baker. I absolutely love him, and he writes beautiful, funny, weird, gross, loving, hairy, sweaty sex scenes that I love. Um, that have a sense. There's a sense of them about like of like generosity of spirit that I really enjoy. Um, and they don't feel misogynist, which is like part of my objection to Roth. Um, more than once, I've like, I've like talked openly about how like I can't stand how a certain dude writes about sex, and then the next, and then later on the same conversation, somebody usually a dude is like, "Oh, you're a prude. Like that's your problem," <laughs> or that something is, to that something that's to that not effect. The word. I associate right. <laughs> with you. No. Right. No. No. And it's happened to me multiple times, and I always, and I'm always like, no, no, I can like not be a prude and write my own very graphic sex work sex scenes and not think that and still not like the explicit sex writing of like certain male authors like that doesn't whatever anyway yeah yeah. that's happened to me quite a few times and i'm like oh god i roll Um. (laughs) yeah i i feel like generous generous is not a word i generally associate with roth in the same way i don't associate prudishness with you um (laughs) i mean roth is generous in his explicit detail at times but when i'm uh, sure. Well, my first connection to Roth was when I read him as a as a young person, and I connected to the twinned kind of engines of shame and desire, like a sense of overwhelming desire and overwhelming shame. Sure, sure. Um, not in any way generosity. And I, I, is that something that you've experienced in your life that you've put into fiction? The kind of way to reclaim some generosity, some dispensing with shame, and saying, you know, this is. This is a part of life that is awesome. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I'm like writing this essay right now about writing about sex. So I've been thinking a lot, very explicitly, no pun intended, about um, <laughs> right, sex writing um, and like what that means and like why. And, and I feel like there's this element of, it's not to say that like sex isn't sometimes shameful. Of course it is. But like, like what I say, like I, as I'm writing this essay, like I, I, I feel like in the same way that sex is not always, you know, two people coming together, like orgasming simultaneously, you know, which is like very unrealistic. So similarly, like yeah. all sex is not like angry, shameful, reluctant orgasms, you know, like it can, like sex can be joyful or interesting or even like not you know, it can be like sort of like whatever, but still be like a pleasurable act. And I feel like there's all these like sort of shades and like ways of thinking about sex outside of shame um, that I'm just very interested in. Yeah. So I feel like when I'm writing, I'm sort of trying to think about like, why have I had sex in my lifetime? And like, Mm. what does that feel like? What does that mean? So I think I'm just really interested in like, thinking about sex writing just in new and interesting ways. And I mean, in, in feminist ways, 
Um, like I'm not, I'm not like I'm writing from women's points of view. Like I'm, in, that's what I'm interested in. And that's what I really care about. It might've been another interview where you said that there was a kind of either activism or importance in just being queer, being a woman and writing about sex. Yeah. And I think not like not commenting on it. Um, like characters just being queer hmm. incidentally is something that's very important to me. Um, in the same way that like some of the sex is just sort of incidental, like it's happening. Like I'm alive, I'm a person, I'm having the care. You know, this is the character. Like they're alive, they're a person, they're having sex in various ways, right. for various reasons, with various results, and like that's just like <laughs> part of a human experience. And also, they happen to be like queerish, so they're like right. Whether they're yeah. with like men or women, like they're still they're just sort of like having their experiences. And yeah, I just I think I just that's just what I. You know, I always tell like people like write the stories you want to see, and I feel like the same way about it. it's like I want I'm writing the sex scenes that I wish I was seeing all over the place, and something very satisfying about that. <laughs> Do you think of your pieces of writing, and I'm thinking specifically of stories, fictional stories, but mm -hmm. it could be any kind of writing. Mm -hmm. Do you think of the writing itself as having a body? as having its own kind of physical form? Hmm. Like the book itself or like the story? I'm thinking like the story, the way that I, one of the things that I loved in the collection is that stories exist in your mind and on these pages in various different shapes, almost like, mm -hmm. well, here's a story in the shape of a legal document. Here's a story in the shape of a urban legend. Here's a story in a shape of a TV show. You know, all stories, but all in all existing in different shapes, different body yeah. types. And I wondered, yeah. like, is that how conscious that is in your mind? or how I don't know if that's that's a good, a great question. I don't know if that's if I'm super conscious of that. Um, but also, I mean, the subconscious has a lot of work. Like, right. I'd be lying if I didn't right. say that. So, I mean, like, I, I think you could absolutely, like, make that argument. Um, in the way that the body, like, you know, what I love about the body is like, right. Like all these pieces like do their own bit. And also it's all sort of serving you, um, and your mm. mind and your existence. Um, and they can be, and they can be, and often are imperfect and, you know, they all have their own job to do. And when you sort of, and sort of the, the, the sum of them is this larger self, right? And so I think you could definitely make that argument for a story collection as like an example of like each thing sort of doing its own thing very well. I mean, hopefully very well, um, you know, while allowing for like flaws and like, you know, various sort of flights of fancy. And then the sort of end result is this like cumulative body. And we talk about like people's bodies of work, mm. right? Once a writer has written a lot of books then you have like a body of work which is like their whole oeuvre or whatever like you like oh like here I can see the writer like I can see the, the body aging right like I can mm -hmm. see like this person's mind and body changing as they get older and as time progresses um so yeah I think that's a very useful metaphor for sure what drives these different shapes of stories for you I mean I think it's a sense of playfulness hmm. I mean I'm very interested in play um, you know, when you're a kid, the world is so open to you in the sense of like your imagination. I, mean, I was one of those kids who like walked around like telling myself stories and like, you know, I played intense games with like anything, even slightly anthropomorphic, um, and even things that were not at all anthropomorphic. And I think that desire to like create stories out of what's around you is like a very like 
childlike sort of play instinct that a lot of people lose. Um, I think if you don't like nurture it or take care of it, it goes away. And so I think I've just, I just am very good at indulging that part of myself. And so that's kind of what my mind kicks back at me. So like, I'm just, when I, when I look at forms, I'm always really interested in, um, like what I'm seeing. Um, and I'm like, how can I, how can I bend that to my will? Like, how can I, Mm. how can I take that existing structure and like make it work for some story that I have in my mind? Yeah. And I think I just really, I don't know. I really love it. Yeah. It makes me happy. (laughs) (laughs) Which, yeah, that's, that's some part. It's like that subconscious thing again. The subconscious is really a wonderful uh, little buddy to have back there. Oh my God. It's magic. But you got to like take care of it. I think the problem is that people, people often think like, it's like the subconscious, you have to like nurture it and feed it. Mm -hmm. Um, You can't just like make it do whatever you want. Like it's like doing, you know, but now I'm like at the point where I do so much, I'm writing so much that like I'll have a narrative problem and then like three days later I'll be showering and like my subconscious will kick back out the solution to the problem I've been, I've, that I, three days ago I was trying to figure out, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and it's pretty great. It's like really exciting. It's like, thanks buddy. Yeah. Thanks friend. (laughs) That's very helpful to me. So. Um, what have you what have you <laughs> discovered like what how do you nurture this i know it's different for every single person but you know what's mm-hmm. what's your thing how do you take care of your buddy <laughs> i mean i think i allow myself time with my mind mm-hmm. you know it's like any kind of relationship right it's like you gotta you know it's like if you're struggling if you and your partner aren't like getting along you gotta like go and maybe go on some dates or like spend some time together and it's like the same way it's like you've got to just like be alone and like f- be thinking and that sounds obvious, but like, you know, in your day to day, like there's just so much going on that like sometimes you don't have time to do that. And actually, this is a thing. This is a reason of one of many reasons why I find this is going to come around. I promise. I find street harassment so <laughs> fucking annoying is because oftentimes when I'm thinking it's because I'm like out walking around in the world, like in my own head, mm-hmm. like performing my own business and like thinking about whatever. And then someone just fucking interrupts me because they're like want to tell me that like they like my ass or whatever and it's like that is that and that is like doubly insulting (laughs) you know it's like insulting in this way where it's like sorry like I was just like in my own mind which is like my right as a person and like you felt the need to just like take me out for no reason at all except your own like weird perverse satisfaction um so yeah so I feel like that was kind of a weird tangent but anyway I like to spend time with my mind (laughs) And I think also just like keeping track of my interests and reading like I, you know, I I feel like I'm always beating this drum, but like some people it's like you've got to read. And like when I have writer's block, I read and like that's just so, so important Um, because other writers have figured out their own solutions to their own problems of their stories and reading is a way of like feeding and being like, here's all this. It's like new material. It's like fuel, you know. And then also just like cultivating my own interests, like keeping track of them. Um, like I just like have like lists. And whenever I get an idea, I write it down immediately. So I just like have it all kind of written down somewhere. And like, that's just like a really useful way of being like, like acknowledging like, thanks, you know, um, I'll write that down. That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. I never thought of writing something down as a kind of honoring, of like honoring totally. your, your mind. Like it's come up with this thought and you take a moment to write it down. Yeah, exactly. Um, so television. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, 
I grew up and I still, I just love television. I just felt like it formed a lot of my subconscious. Did you see the Too Many Cooks thing? I did. I did. Okay. I love yeah. it. I love it so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I notice reading your stories, television pops up occasionally, sometimes it totally in the background, like inventory, where it's the screens are kind of giving us the background of what's happened. Sure. In a way that reminds sure. me of Children of Men, which I know that yep. you adore. Um, and I love TVs in the background doing some expository work. It's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then in uh, Difficult at Parties, uh, the characters watching porn and the the people on the screen, they're hearing thoughts, they're hearing voices, almost like the the video they're watching is haunted by something. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the especially heinous 272 views of Law and Order, which is just just glorious TV haunted by everything. <laughs> so is, is TV a thing? I'm assuming it's a thing. Like how, why are you fascinated by TV? I mean, I'm, I'm generally interested in, in other media forms. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm interested in like video games and movies and TV and all kinds of things. I feel like when I'm teaching, a thing I often have to talk to students about is how, you know, movies and TV and fiction are not the same thing, right? Like they have mm-hmm. absolutely have overlapping instincts and overlapping techniques, but also like when you're watching something on a screen, it is a different experience than reading something on the page. And there's things you can do on a screen that's really hard to do on the page. And there are things on the page that are really hard to do on the screen, right? Um, yeah. Which is fine. It doesn't make one better or worse than the other. It's just different. Um, but oftentimes I'm like very interested in like figuring out how to sort of borrow techniques and sort of like play between them. Um, cause you know, obviously fiction, like I love interiority. I love letting characters go off in their own heads. And so like, that's the, that's the pleasure for me of having the page. Um, but in children of men, like I've probably seen that movie. It's one of my favorites. I've probably seen it. Oh my God. Like 20 times at least. Um, and every time I watch it, I see new background data. Like I see new things happening mm-hmm. in the background that I never noticed before. And that's like the pleasure of it is like without actually explicitly drawing attention to it, you can get all this like background information and it permits, right. Like a lot, la- like there's no need for like info dumping. Like it's just like, we're getting this sort of expository information like in the background, um, which is really, really interesting and really nice. And so that's definitely a thing that I sort of thought about, especially with inventory where like I wanted this like, plague sort of happening in the background but I wanted to like foreground this woman's like very personal life experience and so like that was sort of the technique that I used um I'm with you know especially heinous like I'm really interested in I mean that's a sort of different thing where it's like the, the, a police procedural mm-hmm. which is its own formula that exists in the same way that you have like a detective novel and law and order specifically has like a very specific style um and so, yeah, so I'm just really, I was really interested in trying to, like, hack that and, like, use that <laughs> for my own pleasure. And, like, TV is interesting because, like, you know, a film is made more or less, right, they're always made in, like, a certain, like, a very set amount of time. It's like, oh, this took, like, half a year mm-hmm. to make or whatever. Um, and, you know, it's, like, the sort of the same director and the same, right, everyone's just sort of working into, for this, like, one sort of discrete thing. Um, but with a TV show, it's, like, actors leave writers change people actors die like that which is like a thing that really interests me and i mean it also happens with like movie series like for example like the harry potter movie series right the first dumbledore died like a few movies in and they had to replace him um but the idea that like television goes on for so long that it's just subject to more of like real world intrusion yeah i love that phrase the real world intrusion that like television exists in space and time in a different way where it it ages as you age 
Like as soon as you exactly. see a movie, it's frozen. It's done. You're not. I mean, that's what right. I find. Um, I was gonna say amusing, but like sometimes unsettling with the new Star Wars movies. Characters are all old now. Like Luke Skywalker is an old man. The way I'm an older right. person. Suddenly, that right. sense of a movie's relationship to time feels violated in a way that's exciting to me, but is more like television. Exactly. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, no, it, television is like the. I guess it is like a body in that way. It has this like bodily sense of aging, um, and the real world intrusion. Also, the fact that it's like you know, I'm mean, with like fan culture. Like you know, people have. I mean, people obviously have thoughts about films and TV and video games and all kinds of things, but right. With a TV show, it's going on for long enough that like people develop fan bases and like they're they have thoughts about like the ongoing narratives, um, in this very serialized way. And it reminds me, you know, a story that I think is very influential was very influential for me was um, Kelly Link's Magic for Beginners, which obviously like I think I've read that she was thinking about Buffy when she wrote that that mm-hmm. that story. Um, and you know, sort of deals with like what is it like to be a fan, right? And is like dealing with like this element of like uh, being a f- like engaging with a show and a show sort of being very real and important to you and sort of like meddling in real life in like interesting ways. And I feel like that's a similar, like, like I feel like that was very, that was very influential for, you know, especially heinous. In Husband Stitch, it feels like stories are haunting a person's life. Whereas in especially heinous, it feels a little bit like real life is starting to haunt a piece of fiction. Yeah. I guess I kind of wondered for you how, you know, people, talk all the time about how reality is different than realism which clearly it is because realism is just an attempt to mirror the surfaces of things that doesn't necessarily get at anything true but I wonder for you personally that that boundary between a sense that stories are haunting your life or life is haunting stories I don't even know if this is making sense but <laughs> I mean yeah I mean I think I think there's something really interesting and this is true of all sort of art but like Mm. like as a writer it's really interesting for like people to say oh I've read your book and I have thoughts about it or I read your book and I really liked it or I read your book and I really hated it like whatever like I read I read something that you wrote and I have feelings about it because like (laughs) I it's like a total stranger and I have somehow managed to reach out into like through time and space and like touch this person touch them not necessarily in like a good way but like I've managed to like sort of impose on their life a little bit and this is true also of like dead authors so like I read a lot of dead authors and like they are dead and like from beyond (laughs) the grave like they've created this thing that's like reaching out and like influencing me in various ways or not or just making me mad but like it's still like affecting my life in some way um and there's something very interesting about that to me um and then also the way in which like sort of again with like tv like our sort of human instincts and our human experiences like reach back and sort of touch you know you think about like law and order svu like rip from the headlines right so Mm -hmm. like sometimes you watch episodes of law and order svu and it's like this weird fever dream of like sort of true life things kind of and you're like this is familiar oh because you i I read a story about that like i read read this in like the times or whatever (laughs) and now there's like this weird fictionalized version of it happening but like mashed up with like some Mm. other fictionalized story that i sort of remember and like the result is like very uncanny and strange but um yeah so I feel like again right it's like those things are kind of imposing on each other and I think there's Mm. something very beautiful and weird and scary and interesting about that process uh was that something you wanted in Husband Stitch the feeling that those stories were impinging or pushing against something I'm thinking of all of the the urban legend stories that are sure yeah I realize some people may not have read it so maybe you should describe it a little bit, but, you know, they'll go read it. They'll read it. Right. Yeah. 
They'll read it. I mean, yeah, I, I guess, I guess, yeah. So the short version is like, it's a, it's a, it's the story of the woman with the ribbon around her neck, mm-hmm. um, which is like an urban legend. Um, and then it's, but it's like her story sort of told kind of in almost in a realist way in the sense of like, it's just like her, her life from when she like meets her husband until other things happen. Um, but, <laughs> and then sort of in between, she's sort of like narrating back like the urban legends or like familiar urban legends. Like, you know, the, the girl who st- got stuck on the grave and like the woman who took the, like, took the liver from the corpse and like ate the liver and um, various like, you know, uh, urban legends that really interested me. I always wonder like, what is a science fiction story in a science fiction story? Like in a science fiction world, what kind of science fiction stories do they have? And like in a horror world, what kind of horror stories do they have? And in a fantasy world, what kind yes, of fantasy? Yeah. And I feel like in the same way, it's like in this urban legend, like what do her urban legends look like? And so they're like familiar-ish, but they're sort of warped and off from what we deserve them to be. Mm. And I, yeah, and that just that became that story. Yeah. Yeah, you, you were talking before about imbuing the objects and your world with spirits you know kind of an animating consciousness and it, and it strikes me it's similar that you're you're giving interiority to stories uh there's a maybe this is a stereotyping too much but i feel like a lot of people read stories and the story is the surface of the story and then for other people mm-hmm. it's it's an it's another place to imbue with its own spirit like to give it an interiority to give it a mind of its own yeah you know i think that might be one of the differences between Oh, I feel like this is a controversial thing to say, but I'm like, I'm thinking off the cuff, whatever. Yeah. I feel like that's sort of a difference between what I would call like a literary writing and like, I guess, more commercial fiction, mm-hmm. um, where I feel like with, I feel like a lot of commercial fiction, it feels like you're just watching a movie and yeah. there's this surfaceness to it, but what it, with and, and again, I'm not like really, imp- which is not, I mean, not even like really impugning it. Like it has its own pleasures, obviously, but there's just, and, but I feel like with, with literary fiction, there is a sense of like an animating spirit and like a presence and an experience, not just like puppets acting out in front of you, various things, but like this sense of um, realness and dimension, you know, like you've stepped into a diorama um, and you're like inside of it and there's a sense of life. Hmm. And that's the kind of fiction that really interests me, regardless of what actually genre it manifests as, you know, which can be like anything, but that, and I think that's why prose is so important to me. I feel like sentences are really important because I think they aid in that process. In the process of taking you where? Of animating, Mm. of like animating the work. Yeah. Like giving giving it a muscle and giving it a spirit and giving it a sense of, dimensionality yeah um i think that i think that's part of the job of sentences and i and i think it's possible to try to do that with like a story that's not working and so like then it feels like you know beautiful and dead like i feel like it's not Mm -hmm. that's like fixes the problem or anything but yeah i think that's why i'm really interested in sentences because i feel like they're they're doing that work it's like you know the the story is frankenstein and like the sentences are like the electricity or the lightning Um, yeah or the monster, Frankenstein's monster, I should say. Barry Hanna criticized one of my stories when I was doing a workshop with him as though I had built a cathedral around a dead cat. So, I mean, <laughs> I don't know what the problem with a cat is, but I feel like, yeah, like you, like you, like totally words are magic. That's what spells are, is incantation of words. And you might cast all of these beautiful spells, but it feels like you're just trying to animate some random, I mean, cats are great, but I feel right. like what he was saying is, you know, it's just a cat. 
You're just bringing a cat back to life. You're not really animating a whole something. I don't know. Uh, I've offended cat lovers, but but yeah, (laughs) it's fine. Um, You wrote an essay for, how do you say Guernica's name? I think it's, I never say it right. I say Guernica. I think it's Guernica. I don't know. I feel like it's not the way I say it. Okay. Uh, but anyway, uh, that magazine, yeah. which is great, yes. except I can't pronounce it. Sure. <laughs> um, the Trash Heap is Spoken, which is a title that's mm-hmm. taken from the character in Fraggle Rock, uh, mm-hmm. which is a show dear to my heart. There's a, there's something you said. Uh, the una, unapologetic fat lady is dangerous because, like so many other dangerous things, it suggests that there's another way and that there's always been another way. I wonder, what is it that's so dangerous about another way of being? Hmm. I mean, I think it's always dangerous to learn that there's a different path than the one you're taking because Mm. then you may feel inclined to go down that path and it's exciting, but it's very unknown, you Mm. know, and some people don't, some people don't want, want to do that. Um, but th- I think what's really interesting about with fatness is is that it's this idea that like people act like there's no other choice. Like there's like, like, you know, that the desire to be thin, the desire to lose weight, the desire to sort of engage in like the sort of this capitalist structure that like is very interested in like weight loss as like a thing, this like billion dollar industry, um, billions of dollars, um, that like, oh, there's actually other choices. Like we have other ways of being, but I feel like as someone who grew up with and is like knows a lot of people who are so firmly ensconced in that world and that idea and don't know that there are alternatives to that available to them. Um, it's like, not only is there another path, but like it's been there the entire time. Like it's not brand new. Like it has always existed. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry that you got on this other weird path that you feel like is your only choice. Um <laughs> So it's not dangerous to the, it's dangerous to like the system that's in place. Like it's dangerous to the Mm -hmm. the well-trod path to learn for, for people to know, Oh, there's there's another one I haven't even seen. And it's been here the entire time. Um, So yeah. yeah, So I was just really, I mean, I'm interested in that particularly as it comes to like fatness in the body, but obviously that can like manifest as all kinds of different ways. Yeah. Like the, even what can seem innocent and the way that people think children are innocent, which is ridiculous. Children are, just little humans. Um, but you mentioned the sense of play that children have or they just make things up. Like that, even that sounds dangerous when if adults are just making up new realities, new ways to be. Yeah, that, that yeah. yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. This may be a problematic metaphor. Let me know. In which <laughs> case, we we'll, can discuss that. But do you feel like the way in writing, in storytelling, that people police kind of genre lines or police the idea even of what a story is like this is what a story is and what you've written does not look like a story to me therefore it's not a story is in any way somehow analogous to the way people police body image or body shapes like this is the way a person is supposed to look even you know into identity of like Mm -hmm. people of color like this is what a person looks like and you don't look like a person um i realize i invest a lot in stories so i will make metaphors about stories and human beings (laughs) Um, but yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Like, is it, I don't, I don't exactly know where that evil comes from, but it feels present in so many spheres, the desire to say, this is what a thing is and you don't look like that thing. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a very real, 
I think that metaphor makes that makes sense to me. Um, people like what is sort of categorizable and explainable. This is like very like um, biological. I mean, like children, mm. children go through a phase, like a developmental. My wife used to work as a preschool teacher and like children go through a developmental phase where like everything has a category. Um, so like kids of a certain, I don't even know what age, but like kids of a certain, like very young, like two or three, like so they get very fixated on like this goes here, this goes here, which is also why kids are susceptible to ideas about gender where it's like girls do this and boys do this, which like, obviously is problematic and not right but like kids that's like the way they're organizing the world right and i think some people that makes a lot of sense to them so they're like oh i embrace all types but they have to be in a category and if they somehow don't fit into a category neatly then i find it very confusing and upsetting um and i think this is true of like bodies it's true of gender it's true sexuality it's true and then i think with stories too people get very invested in like this is not the thing i thought it was gonna be and i don't like how i feel like this isn't the category that i was promised by the genre or by the section of the bookstore or whatever um Mm -hmm. and i think people get very stressed out by that and i i think but i think the other people are there's a sort of a, a openness to liminality um that i think is are usually the people that I, I become friends with <laughs> and also the people who, um, the, the sort of way of thinking that interests me most, which is that like, it's not just enough. We're like, I'm switching, I'm combining these two genres. You're like, I'm just going to move freely between all these things as I see fit because I can do that because I'm a person and I have words and I can make them do whatever I want. Um, and I think that's actually very wonderful and beautiful and exciting. Um, yeah. And it's okay to not know. Like, it's okay to not, like, not know what a genre a thing is and just be reading it. You know? Like, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So there's this questionnaire that Bernard Pivot created for some French show that I've never seen. But James Lipton on Inside the Actor Studio would do a questionnaire like this at the end of his interviews. Um, okay. And I love... I love that show. I love James Lipton with his very particular beard and balding head and his stack of index cards that were very high that he would use to interview people. (laughs) I'm assuming something was written on them, but right now I'm enjoying the idea that they're all blank and he's just picking them up and (laughs) and putting them down. Um, What is your favorite word? Liminal. What is your least favorite word? Gloaming. What is your favorite smell? uh campfire smoke what is your least favorite smell uh food that's gone bad in the fridge uh what do you wish that you knew more about philosophy what do you wish that you knew less about the terribleness of the world let's pretend your life has a soundtrack okay what song is playing when you're at your happiest um i i I can't think of the title but the song from the sound of music where she says i have confidence in oh i think it's i have confidence i have confidence in sunshine i have confidence in rain i love that song what is your favorite kind of story one that surprises me what is your least favorite kind of story one that doesn't surprise me <laughs> william faulkner uh, so he he said this thing about how the only thing worth writing about was the human heart in conflict with itself so what I'm, what I'm wondering, if William Faulkner comes back from the dead and writes the story of Carmen Maria Machado, what do you think that story is about? Oh, what, like, what is my heart? Mm-hmm. What does it look like when my heart is in conflict with itself? Yeah. Oh, God. That's such a good question. I'm like, my mind is like racing in a thousand places. Um, 
I feel like it's probably about like letting go of certain ideas that are that are hurtful or trying to let go of them or not not hurtful is the right word but, but trying to let go of, of memories and ideas that cause sort of acidic ruts of pain that are not healable um and like trying to move past those places yeah i don't know if that's a good answer i'm trying to like no it is good i'm just practicing silence <laughs> <laughs> it's a good it's a good um, teaching technique a good interview technique just um being silent yeah <laughs> um yeah i think i think it's yeah i think it's just about like finding those places those those places that are stuck and unsticking them and like how 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 i choose to do that or how mm. i am able to do that i wish he would write that story because then i would know <laughs> uh, and i don't know so william faulkner if you're planning on coming back from the dead and writing a story about me perhaps there's some things you could tell me that i don't know yet ah well yeah uh assuming that doesn't happen you'll just have to keep reading other people's books i guess exactly exactly yeah Uh, thank you Carmen thank you so much Chris this has been amazing you can find out more about Carmen at her website carmenmariamachado.com or by following her on Twitter at Carmen M. Machado you can find a version of this interview featuring informative footnotes and an illustrious illustration of Carmen by our very own E.G. Kosh at our website, storylogical.com. While at our website, be sure, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast and check out our past episodes in which we discuss the stories we love and also, more or less, everything ever. Of particular interest, perhaps, episode 10 of our first season in which we discussed The Husband Stitch, or episode 15, also in our first season, in which we discussed Magic for Beginners by Kelly Link. You can find and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash storylogical. You can follow us on Twitter at storylogical. I'm on Twitter at kuvols, C-U-V-O-L-S. And you can find E.G. Kosh on Twitter at, you guessed it, E.G. Kosh. Storylogical is sponsored entirely by our love of short stories. If you want to support us in sharing that love, there are a few ways you can do that. One, you can rate us on iTunes. You'll find a link for that in the show notes. Two, you can share an episode you love on social media and be sure to tell people why you love it. Three, you can pick one person in your life that you think might enjoy our show and tell them, hey, there's this one podcast you might like. Thanks for listening, readers. Happy reading. I think that we, that is an excellent summation of something.